It is good to be back and good to be together today. Um, if you have your Bible, I'll let you turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation. We'll be in chapter 14 today. And as I'm turning there and you're turning there, um, I really do. In fact, when Jorge and I were talking, he, he, he shared uh, a little bit on the plane back what um, was on his heart from that week about this idea of we are calling people to a purpose, not to a position, and how much fuller that is in our heart and experience. It reminded me of just how wonderful the weekend was and what we're going to be doing uh, over the next few weeks. So uh, this week it, with Thanksgiving break, we've got a little, given everybody a little bit of, of grace. And then starting the first week of December, we're going to be unpacking just a taste of what God revealed to us each week in the month of December uh, as we get prepared to really lean into uh, a direction in the coming year. And as we did that, I've had people ask, how was the retreat? Uh, was it was it good and and uh, not everybody asks the same question but I've always thought what do people do when they retreat you know with me like what do you do and so I just wanted to share with you a little about why it was so good to us um, we started every day about eight o'clock is when we got rolling together uh, and then we spent uh, two and a half hours uh, around about six to eight verses of scripture uh, just talking through Ephesians 4 together uh, and the role that God had given pastors and what that means. And we had prayer time uh, after that, uh, just preparing the day. And if you're like me, when you have a lot to do, it's nice to do that stuff till 1030, but at 1030, you're like, I've just lost half the day. Are you like that with me? Like if anyone sleeps in till noon, you've just wasted your whole day. That's how you know you've become a parent. And so all of our prayers were always, God, would you just make the most of our time from here on out? And what we saw every day was we were faithful in the word, faithful in times of prayer, that God really built, built that out. So for us, that was have a wonderful uh, time together in the morning. And then about 1030, um, we went hard and we found ourselves eating lunch about three o'clock every day. Um, and so it was a little bit longer. We always think we were going to get done sooner than we did, but we would just sit around the table and just walk through Scripture, walk through the church, walk through the different questions we were running through. Then we had a great lunch, and um, the first day, we, we called it our early day. We stopped about 8 p.m., and we played a game of cards. Um, we didn't gamble, but I did win. Just wanted you to be aware of that. Um, and then Tuesday, we did the same rhythm, although something happened and we got done about 9.30. On Tuesday, we ran hard, and then Wednesday, we called it quits a little bit early around 6 and tried to exhale before we came back. Um, but it was simultaneously fulfilling, refreshing, God's Spirit breathed into our times of study and work and exhausting as we just tried to say God we don't want to waste a moment of what you've given us here and so all that's come together as we talked about some big priorities in our church and our ministries across the board and what that looks like as we head into next year so um, that's just a picture of what we we did while we were there and as we just took that back with us we'll be just unpacking what does that look like when it comes to our direction next year what does that look like when it comes to what it means Means to grow as a Christian? What does that look like in family ministry? What does it look like with knowing God created us to serve Him? 
And so that's what we'll be giving a little taste of each week in, in December, uh, and then we'll launch in through the year. But if you are praying for us, thank you for doing that because it was it was sweet, and there are stories to be told. Um, you know, we found out even when we're on a retreat, the enemy, he wants to come with us. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, like, said, God, I want to get away with you, and all of a sudden Satan, like, packs a bag, and he's walking behind you? We, we had those moments, um, and <laughs> we'll share those with you as well. It was, pretty, it was pretty funny after the fact to see how wimpy the enemy is compared to our God. Amen? Like, it's so good. So, um, today, we're in Revelation 14. And as we get into this, um, what we're really talking about is blessings and promises and a reason for hope. And I was in my, my quiet time this morning reading some notes. Um, I, I do different devotionals. And this passage was my quiet time this morning. And it fits so well, I couldn't put it out for us. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 9 through 11 says this. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and self-condemned. This is what Charles Spurgeon wrote in the devotional I was reading this morning. Our days are few and are far better spent doing good than disputing over matters which are, at best, of minor importance. Our churches suffer much from petty wars over abstruse points and unimportant questions. And, and it's funny, as I was preparing this, when we get into the book of Revelation, especially as we're in chapter 14 this week, we're going to be moving back into 13 and, and forward next week as well. We really start to get into a lot of imagery in Scripture. And my mom's doing a, a study on Revelation right now, and she's calling me, and, and you know, she's saying, David, so-and-so is saying this, and so-and-so is saying this. Which one is right, or what's going on? And so we're walking through that, and I'm just reminded that there are times when Scripture, especially the book of Revelation, can become something we just wrestle around, and we miss the truth of it. Because we, we just really want to know what we're looking for. We really want to know what's out there. We really want to know how's it going to look, how's it going to be, and what is it. And I would tell you, I enjoy thinking about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Right? Um, but I don't want to get caught up or missing Jesus because I'm trying to figure out what the pre-Jesus returning looks like too much. Uh, ladies, I, I cannot relate with you. Uh, Christy and I, when we, were, when we were pregnant with Ashley, that's not accurate, when she was pregnant with Ashley, um, we went to these like Lamaze, the breathing classes and whatnot. We got kicked out of things all the time as a couple for joking. You have to joke and stuff like that because it's awkward. It's a group class, right? And let me tell you, all of our dreaming about having children none of it was like what do you think the laboring process is going to be like oh I, th I bet it's going to be uncomfortable you know what i'm saying we never dreamed like that that was never like i'm so excited to see you go through the pains of childbirth it's going to be awesome no we we dreamt about what was coming from that amen i mean if you did that with your spouse we'll have marriage counseling later on but somehow, with the revelation of Jesus Christ that's given for our confidence, like we're obsessed with childbirth. So much so that sometimes we miss dreaming about what 
all those words are pointing us to. So if it's okay with you today, I want to ask you to just join me in looking into God's word for what he has in front of us in Revelation 14 and not too much behind us. So in Revelation 14, we have this picture of the 144,000. And this angel's communicating in a sickle, this all kinds of imagery. We're actually going to read every word in Revelation 14. We don't often read a whole chapter, but we're going to read every word in this chapter today. Um, because every word matters. Because when we start to understand what these words are linked to, it gives them meaning, right? For instance, this year is Thanksgiving is this week. We're excited around our house. We were planning the Thanksgiving meal uh, on our text thread yesterday. So let me ask you a question, and this could be confession time. Who's doing a turkey this year? Who's having turkey at Thanksgiving? We are having turkey. That's good, that's good. If you're not having turkey, we're ta- we will sample any food at the church office, so you can bring it by. But we're doing turkey. So I just started to see, how did turkey get associated with Thanksgiving? How did that even happen in, in our culture? And what's funny is 400 years ago in 1621, November at that first Thanksgiving, this is, these are the, the words that were written. He sent four men fouling. That's it. There's a journal from a chronicler at one of the first Thanksgiving feasts, or the first, and four men went fowling. Well, that means they must have gone turkey hunting, and therefore, 400 years later, who would have Thanksgiving without turkey? Right? You're thinking, we have all this tradition based on that. That's it. That's where it came from. Four men went fowling. I thought, how many times have you and I based so much of who we are on a very meaningless sentence? What we're going to do today is we want to base our thought process not around just, oh, that's not as awesome as I thought it was going to be, to the incredibleness of God's word. All right? That's what we're going to look it into. Um, If you have your Bible, I want you to, to turn to Revelation 14. And in the middle of this, I want you just to read verse 1, and then we'll get rolling. Chapter 14, verse 1. And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and there with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on his forehead. Now, does that start jogging memories? If you've been over here the last few weeks, does that jog some memories, some words in there that you've seen before and, and where we're going? When we, when we read last week, we talked about the 144,000 and the lamb that was slain. Do you remember? We looked at that picture of, of who he was, and we start to see that these words are tied back into more and more and more. But in my quiet time, in my study this week for the sermon, I started to realize that those words mean something potent here because of a promise God gave back in the book of Genesis. We know the story of Noah. And we know how when God flooded the earth, he gave a a what? A rainbow, right? And he gave that rainbow to say, I'll never flood the earth again, right? I want you, I want to read to you the promise that God gave to God in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 through 22. And here's what I want you to listen for, because to me it sets up the whole story of why the book of Revelation is so potent. 
Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering to the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of men. For the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You know, when I read that word, I thought what God promises is he will never wipe out the world again while the earth remains. There'll always be this cycle, this seed time, this harvest, this reaping, this sowing. What Revelation talks about is the day when God breaks that cycle and everything is made new. See, God's promises are being fulfilled from the earliest points of Genesis in the book of Revelation. And so as we see that cycle of his promise, of his word, we really start to lean into this idea that there must be something deeper in the word of God than just trying to figure it out, what it's going to look like when Jesus returns. We know he will return. But instead of just figuring out what it'll look like, what if we look at what it's like, what it's gonna be like? And then I looked and behold on the mountains to the lamb and with him was 144,000 who had his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, I, these words are familiar to us first because the lamb. If you're, if you're visiting with us, it's your first day. The lamb, looking back to chapter seven, is the lamb that was slain for our sin. It's King Jesus, the one who's worthy to open the scrolls, to open the seals that are the beginning of the beginning. But in this picture, we get this idea here that's a little bit different. It says, on Mount Zion stood a lamb and with him 144,000. And the question might become, is every time we see the number 144,000 in the book of Revelation, does it look back to the full number of the Jews, the 144,000, the 12 of the 12 tribes? We wanna ask that question. And really, we don't have to answer it ourselves. Scripture answers it for us. Look in your Bible, look in verse 2, and let's read a little bit further. It says, And I heard from a voice in heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 that have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as its first fruits for God and for the lamb. And there was no, in their mouth was no life found, for they are blameless. See, the 144,000 here aren't connected to the 12 tribes that we read about earlier. But the 144,000 here is talked about as this first fruits of God. And the criteria is different. This group, it presumably, it looks like of men because they have not defiled themselves with women. So they're men. For they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. The picture here of 144,000 is still that fullness. It's that full number. It, God's not leaving anybody out that shouldn't be left out. 
God knows exactly what and where and how and who. And these 144,000 are a particular group. It doesn't mean that only 144,000 get close to Jesus. It doesn't mean only 144,000 get near to him. These are the first fruits of God. If you look at what's on them, it tells us a lot of who they come from and where they've come from. Chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1 says this. The, the 144,000 with them had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And we started all of this in the letters to the churches. Do you remember chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation? It was, it was the ones who were faithful were the ones who conquered. Do you remember? Well, the ones who were conquered are blessed. The ones who are not do not conquer, the ones who are not faithful, they are cursed. And, and what's one of the blessings of being faithful to God? Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3, verse 12 and 13. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. So here's what we do know about this 144,000. We know that they are faithful. We know that they have conquered with Christ and through Christ because they bear the mark of his name on their forehead. In chapter 7, we were talking last week about uh, the seals being unleashed. Here's what I want you to listen to, chapter 7, verse 3. Saying, do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God. Where? On their forehead. The picture that we have of this group of men is that they are the full number that God has chosen from his people because they bear the blessing of conquering through him. That's who they are. How are they chosen? How does God pick them? Well, here's what we do know. We know that some of these men, these men have not um, defiled themselves with other women. In other words, they're virgins. They've been fully devoted to the Lord. Now, whether that's symbolic or whether that's literal, the reality is it's, it's, it's fully kept for God. It's fully devoted to God. And, and if there are virgins, every married person in the room is like, oh man, what does that mean to me? Well, if that's what it means, it means that you and I won't be a part of that 44,000, 144,000. And that's all right. Because scripture says in verse four, something potent, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits as first fruits for God and the lamb in their mouth lie mouth was found no lie for they are blameless so we have to ask ourselves what does it mean to be a first fruit if you look in scripture the first time the word first fruits is written is in Genesis in Genesis chapter 49 verse 3 Jacob's blessing his oldest son Reuben he's about to die he's already had many more sons and he says, blessed are you, Reuben, the first fruits. He's saying, you're not the only son. You were just the marker. You were the first. And there was more to come. 
If we look at first fruits used in scripture in blessing and honoring God, it's in, it's in Exodus. If you were to look in the book of Exodus in chapter 34, you would start to see uh, all these pictures of first fruits as an offering to God. When we have all of this harvest, we take a portion of it and give it to God first. It doesn't mean that nothing else belongs to God. It, it wasn't God's way of saying, you give me first fruits and then all the rest is yours to do with what you want to. Sometimes when we teach stewardship, we teach it this way. Um, we grew up with Dave Ramsey, uh, piggy banks for our children. I don't know if any of you are nerds like us, but that's what we did. And there's piggy banks. It was like 10% goes to God, 10% goes to savings and 80% is for you, Right? The reality is 10% goes directly to God as first fruits. 10% you put into savings to be available, to be used how God would most be honored for it when the day of need arises. And 80% is for you to use as you steward your life for the glory of God. Do you see the difference in that thinking? See, if, if we thought that way and apply it to Scripture, all of a sudden Revelation becomes very scary because the first fruits are definitely in, but everything else is a little iffy. There's religions based on this process, this idea, this mindset. But what the first fruit means is this is a special blessing to God. It's, it's thanking the Lord for his provision, but it's also a promise for everything else. There's so much more to come. So what do we walk away from when we read verses one through five of Revelation 14? What we know as the Lord prepares for the day of judgment, that there will be some pulled from his people through death, through calling, that he sets aside for a special place of worship and blessing in the middle of, of his coming in his restoration. And the goal for you and I is not to try to be counted in that number, right? This is not the picture of the saints marching in. The goal is not for you and I to like, Lord, please pick me in the 144. The goal is not that you and I would be discouraged that only certain people can get close to God, but not everybody. That's not what this is about. The whole picture here is, is that you and I need to know that God will select from his people some for a special place of honor and for worship to him in this time. And that that blessing is a promise that means there's so much more to the harvest. There's so much more. There are so many more believers. There are so many more who have the name of Jesus on their forehead. We, we tend to try to slice it in and put it in this place. If you look around the world at religions all around the world, what you see is this idea that you have to earn your way into this special elite group. We see this going on in, in the Middle East right now. And just reading some of the, the prayers and promises that were being blessed by this Hamas group as they justified these ridiculous actions. What they've been told is there's an elite group and if you get into that group by doing these things, you, you can win, hopefully. 
That's not what scripture says. That's not what the God of creation says. You're not trying to earn his favor. He chooses from his people first fruits. But all of his people are a part of his harvest. And so when we read those five verses, that's what it leads into. And then it leads into this next part. And this is the beauty of today. If you don't know when this has happened, the Bible doesn't say God tells us when all this is going on. Look with me in verse six. The Bible says it this way. We'll read all the way down through verse 13. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every language, and every people. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fall and fall in his Babylon. And the great is she who made all the nations drink with the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the angel, another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, if it's image and receives the mark on a forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors, from their deeds and follow, and their deeds follow them. As you read all of that, we kind of start saying, okay, God, where's the blessing here? Is the blessing that the 144 don't have to be a part of all this craziness? The blessing that I read as I followed through it just seeped through God's word. It seeped through his promises for who he is and in his character. In verse five, it says the first thing after these 144 are counted, he sees an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every, in every language, in every people. Let me tell you two things that we can pull from this. One, the gospel is eternal. It never runs out of juice. The batteries never die. The gospel is proclaimed and every ear who hears it, whenever you hear it, has the power of God or the gospel of salvation in their ears and they have a chance to believe. That was the first thing that I wrote. As long as the cycle is spinning, the gospel is being shared. There's never a place so bad, there's never a season so hard, there's never a time so difficult that the God's not saying the gospel is still going out. Why? because a broken eternity was never God's plan or hope for any of you, for any of us. So he keeps the gospel going and going and going. Whether that's with someone who's just breathing air into their lungs for the first time or someone who is about to breathe their last, as long as the gospel is going out, Salvation, the power of salvation is right 
there with us. And it's so powerful that its message is true. Verse 7 and 8 and verse 9 through 13, they pull in two different sides of God's message of the gospel. And we don't talk about it quite as much as we used to because it's harder. Verse 7 and verse 8, listen to this. One angel said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel says, followed, uh, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink of wine of her passion and sexual immorality. W what happens is this. When you hear the angel, the first part is the real gospel always points you to Jesus Christ. As the eternal gospel goes out, it's always pointing you to Jesus. The real gospel never points you away from Jesus. And it always leads to life, to worship, to hope, no matter how difficult things are. But the false gospel will always fall. It will always get broken. It's an inch deep. The shine will fade. And what used to captivate your heart will no longer satisfy you. Church, if you've ever wondered about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what these angels speak to us about is the reality that what God has given us now is good enough to stand the test of time. When it says fallen, fallen is Babylon, how many things want your attention? How many ideas capture your thought? I mean, we're a people that you can have a thousand compliments in a day and one person can look at you wrong and it kills your whole day, right? Are you, has that ever happened to you? When we find ourselves in the middle of that and it tempts you, you know what? You've tried to live a good life, forget about it. You just do what you want to do. You've tried to honor God in your marriage, it's too hard, forget about it, do what you want to do. You, you've tried to see the power of God in your relationships, you've tried to, to taste and see that God is good and it's hard and life is difficult. Babylon, the false gospel says, give up on the Lord, break those relationships, yield and taste relief. The gospel is not about relief, it's about rest. See, the message of Babylon, the false gospel is, you just need relief. You just need a break. You just need to step away from the pain. You need to step away from the hurt. But the gospel says, you don't need temporary relief. You need rest. And that rest is only found with your eyes fixed on Jesus, with your lips praising Jesus, giving God glory, because he controls it all. He is sovereign over it all. See, when the real gospel is proclaimed, the eternal gospel through all the earth, it differentiates between what is real and what is false. And church, in our lives as Christian, the enemy puts a lot of lipstick on the pig of the false gospel. And it's meant to tempt the saints. Because all of a sudden, righteousness and self-discipline feel like self-righteousness. You, you know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, discernment and flesh turn into a critical spirit. All of a sudden, taste and see that God is good and give your heart what it desires 
they find itself in a falseness and what the gospel says is don't buy in because you will be fallen fallen if you drink of that gospel as the gospel is being proclaimed another angel speaks up in verse 9 through verse 13 we see a third angel says with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand he'll drink of the wine of God's wrath poured from full strength in the cup of his anger he will be tormented with fire and sulfur and presence and of holy angels in the presence of the lamb smoke the torment goes on forever and ever and they will have no rest no night or day these worshipers of the beast and its image whoever receives the mark of his name now listen to verse 12 here is the call for endurance of the saints for those who keep meet keep the man's commands of god and the faith in jesus chapter 13 i heard a voice tell me this write this blessed are the dead who die in the lord from now on blessed indeed for they must rest from their labors for their deeds follow them the eternal gospel shows the difference between a false gospel and a gospel of life one of rest versus one of relief but the eternal gospel also points to the truth your relief will be short-lived because if you place your trust in any other name eternal condemnation is real and the detail that he goes into it says it's it's not a figment of imagination it's not you go for a stint and you come, come back. It's that a false gospel leads to a false reward. But to the saint, to those who trust Jesus, to those who endure, it says, blessed are you. Even if, especially if you're one who die under strict tribulation, don't worry because that pain will be temporal because rest will be eternal life will be eternal see the gospel's being proclaimed if only the 144,000 got in if that was the only good news of this passage there would be nothing to be excited about but what scripture says is the eternal gospel makes clear the eternal path to Christ through him and to life and it makes a false gospel in its path to destruction evident as well so Paul would say to live is Christ, to die is gain, he's right. But there's more. As this book ends, or this part of the chapter ends in verse 14, this is what it says. And then I looked and behold a white cloud, seated, uh, and behold a white cloud, seated on the clown, one like the son of man, with a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his head. And another angel come out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle to the reap for the hour of the reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, who, excuse me, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple of heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar and the angel had authority over the fire. He called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape of the harvest, threw it in the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 sadia, or about 185 meters. 
how does this, why does this chapter end here? Because it reminds us that every word that Jesus said is true. Have you ever heard the verse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36? But concerning the hour and the day, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son of God, but only the Father. At the beginning of this passage, after the gospel has been proclaimed clearly, it's now time for the harvest. The day of judgment has come. The day of the Lord is at hand. And what does the Bible say? There's one like the son of man with a gold crown on his head, with a sickle in his hand. And an angel came out of the temple and he called to him with a loud voice who sat, him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle in, the hour has come, the harvest is fully ripe. In my heart, I jumped to this verse when Jesus said, no one knows the hour, not even the son. I don't know how, I don't know how it works, but here in this passage, I thought that's exactly the picture, the words of Christ. Every word he said is true. If even Jesus saying this word is true, then every other promise is just as secure as this one. The fullness of time had come. The earth is fully ripe. What does that mean? In 2 Peter, Peter writes about this in chapter 3, verse 9. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some counts, but patient towards you, not wishing for any that would perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all should reap. In other words, the Lord is not going to return until his harvest of his people is fully ripe. And when he comes back, it won't be too soon and it won't be too late. It'll be at just the right time. So you and I don't need to be caught up about when the Lord will return because the harvest needs laborers for the workers are few. Paul writes in Galatians, don't grow weary of doing good because you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. It doesn't behoove us to try to nail down when Jesus will return. Because when he returns, he shouldn't find us looking at the clock. Amen? He should find us being about our Father's work. And when he returns, it'll be right on time. It'll be just on time because the harvest is fully ripe. But the last part of this chapter reminds us that God is just. He is gracious because he marks his people who conquer through faithfulness. He is good because he shares his eternal gospel with us at every moment until the cycle breaks and the day of the Lord comes. But he is just. And on the day of the Lord, we'll taste his justice. Romans chapter 2. We, we haven't been here in a long time. You have to go back to the beginning of spring. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you, you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge... Excuse me, oh man, that you who judge and practice such things and yet do them, you'll escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume upon the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you're you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and in well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, the wrath will, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, a Jew first and the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and then to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. In Romans chapter 2, what the Bible says is this, is that God is just. He's not going to give you something you don't deserve, and he's not going to give someone who is undeserving something that they don't deserve. But what Romans chapter 2 says is, if you who worship the enemy, you who do evil, you who embrace sin, you don't have to be the worst bad guy in the world. But what he's just saying is, if you wrap your arms around sin on the day of judgment when the harvest is due, the grapes that Revelation 14 speaks of that are put into the wine press of the wrath of God and poured out on the earth, that's your fruit. It's not God randomly pouring out wrath. Those grapes, the judgment that will come on the day of God, they're what is due because God is just. And although on that day, the world will revile God. They will spit and curse his name. The wrath that they will drink is their own produce. But Saint Christian, to the one who endures, you don't have to worry about it. Because there's no wrath reserved for you whether it's a correct interpretation or not. It didn't strike me that in this harvest, there were two swings of the sickle. In Jesus' story, there's always a good fish and a bad fish. There's the thistle and the wheat. And in my heart, as I read, I thought, Lord Jesus, that first sickle is the harvest that you bring forward. And the second sickle is the harvest that is rejected. You're just. The words the angel said in the tomb are true. Why are you looking for Jesus among the dead? He is risen just as he said. And so this morning, as we read Revelation 14, don't get caught up on what it's going to look like or be like. Instead, just say, Lord Jesus, 
Am I following a false gospel? Am I not only not in the 144,000, but am I not really marked among your people? Until the day of judgment comes, the eternal gospel is a gift to you with the power of salvation for you who would believe. And if you are a follower of Christ Jesus, let me encourage you. Let me, let me invite you in. That the day of judgment will be the sweetest day of your life. Because everything that you're afraid of will be washed away by the truth of a gracious good and just God who gave his son for yours so don't be scared don't be discouraged but let who he is give you hope